Okay, don't skip ahead. I'm going to talk to you about climate change. And I know it can get depressing or infuriating, but our show takes a different approach. It's Laura Lynch, and I'm the host of What on Earth? And we're all about solutions and hope. And I promise, no matter how overwhelming climate change might feel, we're with you on the journey to fix this mess. So listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Imagine living on a rocky, windswept island on less than a square kilometer of land, maybe only one or two other people for company. That is the life of the lighthouse keeper, as described in this National Film Board documentary from 1972. A lot of people apparently grab the opportunity to have what is known as a government job, but uh, when they find out that it means that you've got to live here, then it's not so attractive. (laughs) But it's... uh... It's a good life, if you like this kind of a life. But you're going to be suited. And not everybody is suited. At first, it was... I didn't like it at first at all. Look at the mainland and say... That's where you're going. I'm going. <laughs> but now, I, we go on holidays and I just can't wait to get back here. It's home now. After seven years, it's home. Since the 1970s, more than 200 lighthouses across Canada have been automated. There are now only 51 staffed lighthouses left in this country. Most are in British Columbia and Newfoundland. But if living and working at one of them sounds appealing, well, it turns out you might be in luck. The Canadian Coast Guard has just extended the deadline to apply for positions as assistant lighthouse keepers in BC. Barry Tier is Regional Vice President for the Union of Canadian Transportation Employees, and he says this job is not always an easy sell. Pre-COVID, we were really struggling to keep two people on station. At Sometimes there were stations that had to go down to one person per station. And then COVID hit, and that sort of put a pause on everything. And now we're back out of that and looking to properly staff it. They are staffing them, but it is right now it's staffed with relief keepers, which are people that uh, are only willing or wanting to go there for short periods of time, uh, two weeks, a month, something like that. But they're staffed with that because they uh, are having trouble finding permanent people sort of thing. So they want to create a pool, I think, of people that are willing to do it or wanting to do it and get them through the process. Are you intrigued by this? Joining me now are two people who know all about the life of a lighthouse keeper. Caroline Woodward spent 14 years on the lights, as it's called, in various locations in BC before retiring in 2021. And Barry Porter spent 23 years at lighthouses across Newfoundland starting in the 1980s. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. Caroline, how did you end up as a lighthouse keeper? What was it that brought you to this job? Well, I was working as a publishing rep And I was on a ferry to Alert Bay to show a curator at the Umista Center there, beautiful First Nations art books and seafood cookbooks and so forth. When I boarded the little ferry, a little Jack Russell dog started darting in amongst the moving vehicles. And I'm a dog lover, so I scooped him up and a harried looking man came dashing around the corner the owner, of course, and we struck up a conversation. He wanted to know what I was doing with all my books in my little uh, Chev tracker, and um, he told me about being a relief lighthouse keeper on his way to Paltney Point to relieve the lightkeeper there for six weeks. And I just thought that was marvelous, and I 
emailed my husband right away and said, I think I've found our new life. (laughs) (laughs) What was the appeal? Not just even in that interaction, but in what you knew about it. What was interesting to you about it? I lived in isolation. I grew up on a homestead in the Peace River country. And there was just something about big spaces and wilderness. You know, I think we sort of bond to our early environment like ducks. And I miss that. And I was so busy. I loved my publishing job. It was really challenging and I'm all full of all sorts of interesting people. But I was also a writer and I was not able to write because I was so busy, you know, extolling the virtues of other people's books. So I knew I could finally write again. And I was in my middle age and so was my husband. And I thought, we need to have an adventure. I'm going to ask you about the adventure part of it in a moment. Barry, what about for you? How and when did you know that this was a path that you wanted to follow? Well, it came out of uh, left field. I, I had no intentions or any plans to be a lightkeeper. I, I was a welder by trade, and I'd worked a couple of years out in Manitoba and Alberta, and uh, I returned to Newfoundland, being homesick, and looking for work. And actually, I had applied for a job on the Ocean Ranger mm-hmm. drilling rig that, that sank. Uh, I had wow. medicals. I, I was the next one to be called in that the next welder left. Oh, my goodness. And sad, sadly, the, the rig went down, and I said... Uh, Time for change uh, direction, change careers. And I heard through a buddy of mine that the Canadian Coast Guard were looking for lighthouse keepers. Sort of just out of nowhere, I just uh, applied for it and went through the interviews and and got on the relief list and uh, started in uh, 1983 uh, on Surgeon's Gold on Exploits Island. And in 84, I I went full-time at uh, beautiful Line Point 28. And uh, once I settled at Long Point, that was a land station. Once I got there, I just had the feeling that uh, I was meant to be at this. How did, it, how did it work? When you started in the 80s, what was that like? It was primitive, I thought. Primitive? <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, you're out on, a, out on an island. You've got uh, no computer, no internet, no cell phones. Just a black and white TV to start off with. And uh, the only communication was the CB radio or VHF radio. Back to home, uh, there was a mobile phone that we had that Canadian Coast Guard supplied, but that didn't work very well. So uh, you're 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 isolated. You're out on a island, 20 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean with another stranger. You got to do your job and adjust to your coworker, and uh, it's a unique career, that's for sure. So your family was was away from there, and as you said, you're you're in this lighthouse with a stranger, somebody you don't know before you get there. Yeah, totally. What was that like? That that could be a recipe for disaster. Oh yeah, you if you start work with the wrong partner, you you know you're leaving, you're giving up. But luckily, I started with a gentleman, Calvin Moore's, really sweet, uh, sweet guy, and uh, he showed me the ropes on that first thirty-two day shift. He made it easy. Caroline, what about for you? You went with your husband, but what's the, what's the what's the living situation for most lighthouse keepers in BC? Uh, we live at the light station, and so we work seven do- uh, days a week. Uh, unless there's a medical or a f- real family emergency. Uh, we have our leave once or twice a year sometimes, but usually once. And when I got out there, Jeff had already, my husband had already been working relief, and then in, with great timing, he was, um, there was uh, job openings for assistant keepers. So he was, he was trained up by the time you went out? 
Yes. The way it works here is that the relief keepers go out and they are trained by the um, senior keeper or senior to them on site, on station. But you go out there with your first aid uh, topped up, refreshed, your course and your um, VHF radio training done so that you're capable of communicating because that's one of your main jobs. And and uh, then you're shown how to do the, you know, the weather report, um, how to handle the equipment because every station is slightly different. And, um, yeah, it's, um, I got out there and within weeks I was doing relief. Who's the ideal candidate for this? We heard in that NFP documentary from the 70s, not everybody <laughs> is suited for this job. So... What do you? Who do you have to be? Who is the ideal candidate, Caroline, for a gig like this? Right. Um, That's a really important question. I think people who are resourceful, who are handy. You know, Barry was a welder ahead of time. You know, I grew up on a a farm. You have to have a problem-solving set of mind. You can't just call in the, the shops. The weather might not allow them to be flown in for days and weeks. You have to enjoy um, isolation. So if you have a hobby like woodworking or um, so many lake keepers have built um, beautiful little um, dories or boats, you know, row boats, sewing, uh, quilters, uh, knitters, uh, writers, photographers. My husband's a photographer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all things that help you get outside every day and appreciate where you are and the wildlife and birds and marine mammals that you're looking at. And um, and you've got to be steady because the weather reports have to be given every three hours consistently to the Coast Guard radio. And you've got to keep an eye on the weather, too, because if there's a big change and there's criteria for how big that change needs to be, you need to call in uh, a weather special um, to alert float planes and mariners that uh, things are going sideways. Barry, did you, you find that you were suited? Box. Did you automatically were you? Did you feel like like this was the place that that you were meant to be? Yeah, I fell into into the position uh, pretty uh, natural. Uh, you know, like uh, Caroline said, you you got to be a jack of all trades. You got to be a weatherman, a radio operator, carpenter, plumber, tour guide, cook, medic. And, uh, you know, sometimes a counselor or a shrink because, uh, you know, you got to deal with the isolation and uh, people deal with it in different ways and, you know, embrace your hobbies. And, uh, you know, and that, it's, it's not everybody's caught out uh, for that career, that's for sure. And, how, uh, how, did you, how did you deal with the isolation? I tried every hobby under the, under the sun, everything but knitting, you know, from wood carving <laughs> to, to oil painting to t- teach myself how to play guitar and... Uh, you know, photography, woodworking, hiking. Uh, I've done everything over the 23 years. And, uh, you know, during the winter months, that's, that was the worst. Uh, long, dark days. you got to keep your sanity and uh, or, or it's trouble, right? You know, some guys, they do one shift and they, they leave. They, they never come back. Right? It's, it's not worth the isolation and, and the pay is not, not uh, sufficient enough. How would yeah. you leave? I mean, you're working in some pretty remote locations. How would you get off well, and on well, to, to where you were? Well, uh, air in, on the northeast coast, it was by speedboat, your own speedboat in the in the spring, summer, and fall. And during the winter, you'd uh, use the Canadian Coast Guard helicopter. So you'd go through some uh, some wicked storms to get in, to get out and get back in sometimes, right? So it's uh, 
it was tricky. Um, you know, you break break a lot of safety rules uh, to get out to get on station because uh, you got two men that's been out there for a month and they wanted to get back in. So, tell me about what happened. There was one. What it was right before Christmas, right? Yeah, uh, it was December, like December twenty second, nineteen ninety five. I think you have every second Christmas off, and uh, this particular year uh, we we're due to get off and. Our changeover date was like probably December the 18th and uh, was bad weather. It was too rough for a boat. Uh, the helicopter was uh, stuck in St. John's uh, and the weather was calm for a storm to get worse. And uh, so we hired a local guy in Hembury uh, and uh, they came out in the afternoon and it was, you know, northeast wind, rain, probably 60 kilometers of wind or, or gusting to, to 70 or 80. Uh, at the lighthouse, there's no dock, no dockies or wharfs or coves. You just come to the side of the cliff and uh, you have to exchange your your supplies because you bring out your monthly supplies. took us about almost an hour. We had uh, sea conditions was, was rising and falling 20 to 25 feet. And uh, our, hop, our boat operator would sneak into the rocks and toss out a few boxes, come back out. And you you just had to stay in this little little cove. Uh, you see everything swirling around you, rising up and down. Yikes! Uh, it took us it took us almost an hour to get uh, two men on, two men off. And when you jump, you know you're doing a Spider Man uh, jump to the cliffs <laughs> and just pray to God that you uh, the sea don't wash you away. So it was pretty tricky. Don't try this at home. No. <laughs> Caroline, he, uh, Barry mentioned food. Uh-huh. I mean, how, how do you go about getting supplies? And you had a little garden that was there, right? Yes, we uh, became great gardeners. And we had a, a greenhouse that we doubled the size of. And there was a cold frame and lots of raised gardens. And, of course, the wonderful uh, wild blackberries that we corralled into a, a um uh, sort of a pen, uh, and, but uh, we could really eat something out of our West Coast gardens um, every month wow. or in the greenhouse. And I grew asparagus and globe artichokes and, and all sorts of leeks and winter cauliflower and things like that. But the thing that BC keepers have to do as well as set up an account no matter where you are in Prince Rupert or or off Victoria or on the West Coast Trail here with one of the big uh, grocery stores where they have personal shoppers and they go out for you once a month and then they take all these boxes down to the base and uh, the helicopters um, come out on the grocery tender, we call it, and uh, once a month or once every five weeks or so. And uh, so that's always like Christmas when, when those grocery helicopters come in and the pilots and, yeah, so they get extra cookies from us that day. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Barry, you need to make sure, I suppose, that, I mean, given how isolated where you were was, uh, that you had enough food, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. We, uh, you, know, you, you go for 32 days and... You have to take sixteen meals, sixteen suppers. You you cook every second day, basically for your for your coworker, and uh, you look after your own uh, lunch practice. But uh, you know you always had to have you know try to have a couple extra meals in the in the deep freeze, just keep in the kitty for uh, for being over, you know storm down because uh, you know depending on the weather, you could get stuck at your extra four or five, six, seven days. Mm. 
Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1 Back at Base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let me talk about the work. There is a lighthouse keeper in BC, Spencer Wilson. He's stationed at Boat Bluff on the North Coast. He has a YouTube channel where he describes his daily tasks, including tracking the weather. Have a listen. So when we're doing our cloud cover, we have to take a look at the celestial dome. If you look at the clouds today, what we have, there are several different layers of cloud before you reach the maximum that we have to report at 2,500 feet. So taking a look, we have some cloud cover around 500. Caroline, you're talking about um, submitting the weather. That's a huge part of this job, right? Yes, it is. And, you know, when you have air ambulances coming in, when your own crews are coming in uh, by helicopter, um, you know, you want to get this right. And um, I worked at a station at Nootka a fair bit, uh, and we did the, the, the weathers, the cloud estimates there a lot, and we would get calls from the um, float plane operators in gold in gold river asking you know where where were the clouds and so the keepers that we were replacing there doing relief for them while they went off they had a beautiful panorama uh, map in the radio room with the height of every um, mountain and prominent feature Mm. at uh, which level you know the clouds were so you know if i was getting a call i could look out the window refer to the map and be able to say with some authority you know it's all clogged up that way but it's high here and and then he would know which way to fly in very part of the job is running the foghorn how does the foghorn work uh the foghorn uh is is hooked up to what they call a videograph it uh it shoots a beam of light strobe light out uh two miles out into the, over the ocean. And if there's a clear day, then it's, it just, the light continues. Uh, if the light bounces back uh, caused by either fog or snow flurries, that will set off the fog on. It's, uh, it works pretty good, but uh, it, 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 you know, the, the window that this little strobe light shoots out on, uh, we we found that uh, you get freezing rain and then it doesn't read properly and and it doesn't detect the the fog or or the snow so uh, that uh, it had, would have to be turned on manually uh, for the, in those cases. Right? You could have days where it would be foggy, right? For days on end, would you start to lose your mind up there? Yeah, uh, two or three days is not too bad, but uh, you know I've had it I think up to seven days with this horn blasting in the background every thirty seconds. And you're looking at the window, you know, you're, you're in a beautiful uh, uh, setting with the ocean and, and, you know, could be a few icebergs or whatever. And, uh, you know, when, when the fog rolls in, you got zero visibility for days and days and days. And uh, it tests your, your uh, sanity after a few days, I must say. 
Caroline, would, would that give you a different perspective on the province and its landscape? You would see weather, and weather's incredible to see from a distance, uh, but right up close. You would be as close as, as, as people could be to roiling seas and what have you. Do you have a different perspective on the province and, and, and what's around you? Definitely, definitely. You know, doing the, the lightkeeping work, it was something to document, you know, because in a way we're documenting climate change right every day yeah. with our methodical, consistent uh, reporting and, and taking of measurements and so forth. And it, it's something that you just accept. You know how Canadians, we are obsessed by weather. Mm-hmm. And But out there, you know, I mean, I really... I relate to what Barry says about too many days of fog, because we felt the same about um, rain, you know. But um, the weather, it is something that just is. You accept it, you document it, mm. you rejoice when it's gorgeous, and, and you take photos and, and all the rest of it. And sometimes when it's really thumping and you've got huge seas and, and everything, it's kind of thrilling. It's not thrilling to end up in your lighthouse at 2.30 in the morning because of a tsunami warning but um you know you you just go that's exceptional barry a lot of as i said the lighthouses in this country have been automated um how do you feel about that what are we what are we losing in that uh yeah i am i was never in favor of uh automation Uh, i i still feel that uh, the certain locations around the coast that we need uh hands-on. We need a, a living light keeper observing the, the the coastline, whether it's fishermen or sailors or kayakers in the area. Uh, you know, a solar panel or, or a computer chip cannot uh, cannot replace uh, or a living light keeper on a cliff with a set of binoculars. You know, I, I've saved lives uh, and no one knows how many lives are saved by preventing a uh, accident from uh, light keepers stationed around the coast, right? What do you miss most about the job, Barry? Uh, the, the beauty, uh, you know, a, a nice sunset uh, on the ocean, 20 miles, not a, not a person around. The nice sunset, so the, the, calm, the calm evenings would be nice. But, uh, you know, I, I had my kick at it 23 years. I was, I was ready for a change when, when I uh, shifted uh, careers and, uh, you know, family life and all that, you know, it's, being away from your wife and and uh, my two kids, like uh, that's difficult, right? Yeah. Caroline, what about for you? Um, what, what do you miss about it? Well, like Barry, I miss seeing wonders of nature, like the whale migration of the gray whales from Mexico uh, all the way up to Alaska, and just seeing them puffing along the horizon past. Uh, Leonard Island, past Tofino, uh, and orcas uh, charging along, you know, uh, and, and really after something. And uh, just uh, the spectacular uh, sunsets. And like Barry, I, you know, I'm very happy to spend much more time with family. We were able to have family out uh, for special occasions, you know, Christmas, uh, and when we couldn't get off. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a, it's a wonderful chapter of our lives. Uh, we're so glad we did it. We feel it was worthy work and good work. And um, I really hope 
some young people listening today will, or some middle-aged young at heart people <laughs> <laughs> listening today will will consider it because, uh, you know, there's no substitute for eyes and ears and, um, and uh, the human judgment uh, to call in for people uh, in trouble and to notice what's going on mm. in the water. So... And maybe I'm, I don't know if I'm young at heart, I'd let other people determine that or not. But in talking to you both, you are. You probably roll your eyes, but this sounds like an ideal job. I mean, I would love to do something like this. I like being by myself. I love the idea of that hands-on work and being in nature. If I was thinking of applying for this, I'm not, but if I was, and maybe I will, to the surprise of my partner, what, what would I need to consider? What's something that, that, that somebody who's applying for this, Barry, needs to think about? Well, you got to you got to be able to handle the the remoteness, right? Um, there's a lot of perks, but uh, you got to be at peace at oneself and 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 just be able to occupy yourself in in uh, extreme conditions, weather conditions, and uh, you just got to be happy with oneself. I think. Carolina, am I crazy for thinking this sounds like a dream job? Well, I don't know what your first aid um, level is like, but you have the radio skills, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad to talk to you both about this. It sounds like a real adventure that you have been on and an adventure that um, a lot of people may be intrigued by. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, nice talking to you as well, Caroline. Yes, ditto, uh, Barry. Bye. Thank you. Caroline Woodward and Barry Porter, both former lighthouse keepers and writers. You can read about Barry's experience in Newfoundland in his memoir, Adventures of a Lighthouse Keeper. And Caroline's story from BC is called Light Years, Memoir of a Modern Lighthouse Keeper. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.